There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 22nd of February 2010. For the newcomers out there, look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website. I say this at the beginning of every show to remind people that I've got a whole bunch of sites up there. So if you go into the first site, cuttingthroughthematrix.com, bookmark the rest of the sites I have up. That way you can always download the latest shows when I am unable to upload to some of the top um, sites that I use. Sometimes they, for some reason, which they can't explain, uh, they don't automatically increase my bandwidth when I'm uploading. So remember this cuttingthrough.jenkness.com, cuttingthroughthematrix.net.us.ca, Alan Watts, cuttingthroughthematrix.ca, and Alan Watts, sentient, sentinel.eu. The last one is a European site, has the same audios for download, but it has addition of transcripts of a lot of the talks I've given over the past, and you can download them, print them up, and pass them out to your friend, and choose from the various languages of Europe. The tin can moment is very brief here. I don't blow my own horn or rattle it too too much just to uh, keep my modesty, you might say, or self-respect. Some people have none. But uh, uh, I, I need you, uh, the listeners, to back me up. Buy the things I have for sale on cuttingthroughthematrix.com or donate to me. You can also use the PayPal button for payment as well if you send a separate email. U.S. checks are good to Canada. International postal money orders from the U.S. to Canada are good too. Stress international. Make sure you get the pink bordered one or the pinky orangey thing, not the purely green one. The green one is internal use only. And you can use um, Western Union, MoneyGram, or cash. Some people just send the cash, and that comes through just as well. Outside the Americas, same deal. MoneyGram, Western Union, cash, or PayPal. As I say, PayPal, you can donate to me to keep me going. Or you can donate and also send a separate email for the purchase that you want through the donation. And it's very important that you do, as I say, most hosts get paid by the advertisers. That's how they survive. In fact, when they move uh, to the other stations, they take those advertisers with them often, so that they're often hunted, they're headhunted by the different companies. I have nothing to do with the advertisers. That way I don't have to bring them on and, and help plug their stuff. Uh, that gives me a free hand. The advertisers that you hear on this show pay RBN directly for the time. Uh, they, that they pay for their bills, pay for their staff, their board ops, and uh, their equipment, which is always, of course, like mine too, is always needing renewed or fixed at the very least. It's very expensive uh, broadcasting from radio stations. So you have to help me keep going. You can do so by donating or purchasing the things I have for sale, and I've just explained how to do it. Most folks skip the first five minutes, and if I was a salesman, I'd really pester you, pester the heck out of you every ten minutes by plugging the same stuff, as most of them do. 
But I'm not here because this is a job. It's worse than any kind of job, believe you me. And it's more than any vocation. It's something that has to be done. I'm not building a business enterprise by any means whatsoever. And if I was, I, I would be getting paid by the advertisers quite a lot of loot in that kind of area. But as I say, this gives me a, a free hand to do what I want to do. And I think perhaps, hopefully, it gives a little bit more credibility to what I'm saying. There's no ulterior purpose, except just to tell the people what reality is and uh, show them how to try and get at least a little bit sane, if nothing else. Now, here's the music coming in, and I'll come back with tonight's stories after these messages. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Reality, as I say, is a favorite topic of mine because it's the hardest thing to find. I think John Lennon sung, uh, Give Me the Truth, That's All I Want is the Truth. Well, that goes along in the same category, but it starts with reality. Um, many levels of what we think is reality uh, will give you what they claim is the truth. But uh, the more you study into things, you realize you truly are in a scientific type of dictatorship, the type that uh, Aldo Huxley talked about. It's very precise. It starts at birth, really. You're downloaded from your parents. You watch cartoons. You're downloaded with a thousand messages there, but the environment and all the rest of it, and things your parents don't even notice. And you go into school where, again, through scientific indoctrination, um, your program. It's interesting to look at teachers, what they call toolboxes that they put up for special courses, how to how to present certain topics to the children, and how to present it in such a way. It's a formula, you see, that it'll it will stop the child from really questioning what you're presenting to them by the formula in which it's presented and by even emotive words interjected with the things you're talking about. It's actually a formula. It's not up to the teacher. That's why they give them what they call toolboxes. And some of these teachers' websites, they'll give you, they'll let you see some of these toolboxes. Most of them you have to pay for. That's to keep the general public out. They don't want you to know that they're using scientific types of indoctrination, which is indoctrination, not education, uh, to, to, to program children. So they're all one in their thinking. They all think they're quite natural, and they're given their own Plato's cave so that whatever topics they bring up in the playground will be understood by all the rest in the cave. It's all familiar to them. Anything outside the cave, they'll ridicule and um, probably give someone a hard time. So that's how it really, really does work. And I, I was thinking back from an article I'm reading here from The Guardian. Now, The Guardian, UK, is a, it's really, its job is just to take the left-wing idea. That's what they always give you right-wing papers and left-wing papers. And you're supposed to choose one or the other, just like you do in politics. But you see, all newspapers today have an environmental correspondent, which really means they're failed journalists that go the easy routes 
and, and Pravda, under the Soviet regime, would have been proud to have them because they just spout off whatever's a politically correct theme uh, that they're designated to write about. And in The Guardian especially, they have all their greeny um, ones, especially Jeffrey Sachs, for instance. Jeffrey Sachs said that climate skeptics are recycled critics of controls on tobacco and acid drain. Well, Mr. Jeffrey Sachs, what happened to your hole in the ozone and what happened to your coming ice age uh, and what happens to your, to your, um, uh, to the, the lakes that were going to be dead lakes all over the world because of acid drain and so what happened to all that, Mr. Sachs, you know? Now that you're spouting the next uh, roasting frying period and all that rubbish. See, these people are just little prostitutes. They're, they truly are prostitutes that uh, take whatever's politically correct. They, they smell the wind when they're young, and they go with it uh, for the career's sake, you see. Yeah, career's sake. It'd be the same if they became a bureaucrat. Bureaucrats allow horrible things to be done to the public because the public are reduced to, to numbers. They're not people anymore. They're impersonal. And that the type of character that would go into that is Jeffrey Sachs. That's how Hitler um, could, and by the way, he copied it from the Soviet Union, as I say, watched the Soviet story. But that's how both of those countries, which are socialists, remember, the same as we are all now, um, that's how Hitler uh, could install the campaign to efficiently kill people, which he learned from the Soviets who'd been doing it long before he came along uh, because they used uh, a very... Uh, very, very specialized technique, as they call technique again, within bureaucracy to reduce people to inhumane, actually non-human status, just numbers and categories. And uh, they just write them off at the top. The top I give them a list of numbers. These, these numbers have to be eliminated, uh, do it next Wednesday at so-and-so, and that's how they did it. Very, very efficient. So I have no time for, for prostitutes that truly are in it for their own benefit, uh, and they're fanatical. And, and when you get down to the bottom of what's inside them, they really do, they do hate humanity. They hate it so much that they'll, they'll take the, any recent lie that's put from the top and run with it. They just run with it no matter how ludicrous it happens to be. And, and just name-call everyone who comes up with evidence to the contrary. Well, in the Guardian newspaper... Uh, but with a different author here, but still the Guardian, of course. Uh, it says, uh, Vaux de Boer, Boer's resignations, uh, compound sense of gathering climate crisis. They're all worried about de Boer. See, the UN right now is chopping uh, out some of its top people just to give them the temporary fall. They won't be out of the UN. They're out of that position, and they'll replace them with someone else's name that we haven't heard of yet, who's a bit more keen, perhaps, or been taught the, the latest techniques of lying. Uh, but uh, it says De Boer is stepping down as head of uh, the climate department. It was, he was a climate chief. They've got so many chiefs there, eh? It just makes you astonishing because you've also got Pachuri, the IPCC, a climate chief for that one. So they're getting rid of them just to uh, throw a little sacrifice to their, to their people below them, all their workers that are a bit annoyed that things have gone wrong. And this is from 18th of February 2010. Yvo de Boer, uh, United Nations Climate Conference uh, chief at a new co- news conference on the eve of the Copenhagen Conference, which ultimately ended in disappointment. How can everything have gone so wrong so quickly? A year ago, the prospects for successful climate change regulation were bright. A new U.S. president promised 
positive re-engagement with the international community on the issue. I wonder where this international community is. I've always wondered about that. Civil society everywhere was enthusiastically mobilizing. Did you realize that all throughout your societies, your civil societies, because that's what you are, you were all mobilizing to demand that world leaders uh, seal the deal at Copenhagen and the climate denial crowd. <laughs> I like how the word the denial crowd Holocaust deniers, you see, the terminology is very important in psycholinguistics, had been reduced to an embarrassing rump lurking in the darker corners of the Internet. Now there seems to have been a complete reversal. Obama is held hostage. Oh, he's not changing his mind. No, he's held hostage by a deadlocked Senate, which will agree to neither domestic climate legislation nor U.S. participation in a new legally binding treaty. Copenhagen was a disaster from start to finish, and even the face-saving Copenhagen Accord is winning at best lukewarm support even from the countries that helped draw it up. To add to the sense of crisis, the climate denial lobby is suddenly resurgent. Uh, I love their words, I really do. And the conspiracy theories, oh, that underlie the hacked climate emails controversy are in danger of becoming popular received wisdom. So then they go on on bewailing the, the, the loss of this great uh, uh, high-level prostitute because the whole climate thing is, is nonsense and bogus and is being exposed as a political agenda. Everything at the United Nations is a political agenda. That's what the UN was set up to be, one big socialist world agenda. Pure politics in every direction, every facet of human life comes from the United Nations. And here's another article here. This is from The Telegraph by Christopher Booker, 20th of February, 2010. It says, One could not want a better vignette of the gulf that has opened up between our political class and the rest of us in a bizarre little item which emerged last week on an obscure part of the European Commission's website. The British government is revealed by the EU, as the, that's their parliament over there, official journal, has allocated £60 million of taxpayers' money to be spent on buying carbon credits from the third world for the use of government buildings and other official purposes so that our civil servants can, can continue to benefit from the CO2 emissions needed to keep their offices warm and lit. Do you see where this is going? See, they start with, this is how they do everything. They start with the government departments. Well, they go along with it. Then it comes down to you folks, and I'm going to take the last penny off you for all this carbon nonsense. This is, get you all used to it. But this is what they're spending. Just for, just for the, the, London's civil service. 60 million pounds to buy nothings, nothings, bags of nothings, not even the bags. You would have visualized the sacks, empty sacks full of carbon, all folded up neatly. But when you open them up, there's obviously carbon inside it, obviously, because they're, they're labeled carbon credits, you see. Utter rubbish. This is the best scam they've had in history from all religions. And this is a religion, too, that they've, they've created for the lower classes to believe in, all their helping uh, classes, you see. In the old days, it was just sins, bags of sins and stuff that you had to pay for. Uh, now, it's bags of something, rubbish, something that's there naturally. In fact, we'd all be dead without it. So do all the plants. So the government has contracted to buy these credits, mainly available from China and India, through 10 British and foreign companies, including, of course, Barclays Bank, 
and a branch of J.P. Morgan, rather oddly situated in a back street in Oxford. Our entire government machine, politicians and civil servants alike, is now obsessively dedicated to the proposition that we must drastically cut our carbon emissions to save the planet at virtually unlimited cost. But when it comes to the officials and politicians themselves having to make sacrifices as their own fuel bills soar, they've quietly arranged for the rest of us to shell out £60 million to allow them to carry on much as before. You know, turning up their thermostats and all the rest of it. As the story becomes more bizarre, the contracts with Barclays, J.P. Morgan and co., who will retain up to £9 million in commissions, so it's not a, not a bad deal. It, 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 oh, lawyers, you know, and banks, lawyers and banks run the world, don't they? They can't lose, no matter what they do. Ah, new form of slavery. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, reading an article from The Telegraph about the con games as they sell this fiction back and forth that we're all going to be supposedly having to pay for, uh, for your own breathing, etc., uh, very shortly. That's, it's a whole political scam to bring in a brave new world. That's what it's all about. As the big boys, of course, they make masses of bucks off it and all the prostitutes that jump on board. And there's lots of them, believe you me, in society. Lots of them will jump on board. Uh, that's why the Soviet era worked for a long time. That's when any, why any totalitarian regime works for a long time. There's so many people get on board, learn the handbook and the political speech and the correctness, and away they go. They're fanatics, you see, especially when they're filling their own pockets. But it says here, the largest and easily the most lucrative component of the CDM market, that's the carbon trade market, administered under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, again, the United Nations, you see, the strange entity that none of us vote for, is a peculiar racket centered on the manufacture of CFCs, that's chlorofluorocarbons, classified under Kyoto as greenhouse gases, infinitely more potent than CO2. The way the racket works is that the Chinese and Indian firms are permitted to carry on producing the refrigerant gas known as HCFC-22 until 2030. But a byproduct of this process is HCFC-23, 11,700 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than CO2. The firms can then destroy the HCFC-23, claiming all allocations of carbon credits worth billions for doing so. Not bad, eh? They make the darn stuff, they profit off it, uh, then they, they can destroy uh, the byproducts and get paid for doing it by us. Not, isn't that a deal, eh? Boy, I, you know, the mafia couldn't dream up this stuff. This is more wily than them. It's beautiful. The, only the bankers could do this, and the lawyers. It says, well, much of the useful HCFC-22 is then sold on, on the international black market. <laughs> isn't that something? According to the UN Environmental Programme, a body set up in 1972 by a Canadian businessman, Maurice Strong. He's not a businessman. He's one. That, he's one. Who? He, oh, he's just a gopher. He's a technocrat for the Rockefellers who picked him up, and you know he went to college and just put him right into the oil industry and then for other places to get the hang of things, and then stuck him into the United Nations. 
so they could run it, basically. He says he was its first chairman and father of the UNFCCC. Destruction of CFCs of last year accounted for more than half of the CDM credits issued in a market which will eventually be worth an estimated $17 billion. Not bad. It's like, it's like when they came up with a scam for getting rid of fluoride, a byproduct, basically, of the aluminum industry. And the Bronfmans in, in Canada and another group in the States uh, worked together to have it lobbied and passed through governments and the dental law, uh, professions. And to tell you, it was good for your teeth. So that we started to buy their waste products, and, and they told it was good for us, you see. That's how they did it. Now they're doing the same thing with this, this HCFC 23, uh, a byproduct of their, of their very lucrative business. And so they destroy the byproduct and then we pay them for doing it <laughs> billions of bucks. I mean, he, isn't this something else, eh? It says, thus we pay billions of dollars to the Asian countries for the right to continue emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases here in the West, including the 60 million contributed by British taxpayers to keep our civil servants warm. As a result, we enrich a small number of people in China and India, including Maurice Strong, who now lives in exile in Beijing. He's, he's got a UN building there. That's where they put him. And mind you, he's very near his, I think it was his aunt, um, who was buried there. She was an advisor and friend of the revolutionary Mao Zedong. There's a documentary on TV where he went to see the, visit the graveyard. See, they're lifelong revolutionaries and lefties, these guys. Having been caught out in 2005 for licently receiving $1 million from Saddam Hussein in the oil for food scandal. That's Mr. Morris Strong for you. You see, they're, they care about people, these guys that fill their pockets all the time. They really care. Uh-huh. He played a key part in setting up China's carbon exchange to buy and sell the CDM credits administered by the UNFCCC, of which Strong himself was the chief architect. Oh, I tell you, I tell you. And they're still making money. They're, they're still making movies about Al Capone and stuff like that. Here, here's here's the, the real stuff here. This is the real stuff. Ah, beautiful. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about starting a company where I can just get bags that will sort of hold shape with nothing in it and sell it off as, as pollution holders. You know, At least you'll see something. These guys don't even see anything. It's all bogus, pie in the sky. And Judy, uh, propaganda is astonishing. All all movies are, are propagandic movies. Uh, they have they're embedded with messages all the time, preparing the minds merely of the young for what's to come, without them even knowing it. But it makes certain topics familiar with them. It even might give them a sequence of going working through it till you agree with it in the movie by following the heroes. And then it becomes your opinion. So nothing shocks you later on when it actually happens. You're familiarized with it. Here's the economic union. The parliament, this great super parliament, is dictatorial that runs Europe. The precursor of the North American uh, amalgam uh, parliament we'll have here. And it says here from the Mail Online, um, this is February 22nd, the economic union superheroes solve a humanitarian crisis caused by an earthquake in a comic, a comic that's costing the taxpayer £200,000. That's what, almost $400,000 for a novel to elevate them as heroes. For the children, back with more after this break.
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, reading an article from the Mail Online to do with uh, how... The parliamentarians now, the super parliament running the whole of Europe, uh, this non-democratic institution where they actually make laws in secrecy at the top, that's been in the newspapers, um, are now churning out novels about themselves, how wonderful they are, they're humanitarian, and how they're really saviors. So it says, a comic book portraying two fictional European Commission bureaucrats as humanitarian heroes Battling to save the world is being sent to schools. Of course, get to the children first, brainwash them. And homes at a cost of £200,000 to the taxpayer. More than 300,000 copies of Hidden Disaster, which is printed in five languages, are being dispersed across the UK and mainland Europe. The hardback graphic novel was written by Belgian author Eric Bongers. I was going to say bonkers for a minute. It follows Zena and Max, two employees at the European Commission's Humanitarian Aid Department, or ECHO, as they try and raise money for Borduvia, a fictional state that has been devastated by an earthquake. Beautiful aid worker Zana, who wears a safari jacket with a patch depicting the European Union flag on it, is sent to Borduvia to manage the humanitarian crisis. There she meets up with local charity worker Tet Jang, who takes her to the worst-hit region of Kelo, an area in the Urge Mountains that is run by rebels. Oh, Tez Jiang takes her to meet the rebel leader, who at first refuses her offer of European Commission aid, so they didn't get bought off, I guess. It says, uh, but determined, Zana delivers a spirited response that is sure to leave children across Europe enraptured. She says, in tragedies like this, international solidarity is normal. Solidarity. Have we heard that before? Eh? Mm, I wonder. So here you are writing novels, utter fiction and propaganda and taking your tax money to brainwash your children. And that's, this is nothing new in this, actually, to be honest with you. There's nothing really new in this at all. Now, I've mentioned before about music and how there's sequences, and every, so every writer knows how there's, there's actually sequencing in music, and where you put your hook or your chorus-type uh, hook in there, and so on, and how long it must last. They dictate at the top how much... An album must last, or a record must last, and it's the same in, in the the movies, because uh, scientists, because of its propaganda values, have been at this for an awful long time with movies, and there's hardly a movie ever churned out that is not meant to alter culture. That's the real purpose of them. And in Hollywood, uh, those involved call themselves the culture creators, not followers, not reflecting or mirroring society, but actually creating society. Because you see, like Plato said, basically, monkey see, monkey do. And we do, we copy what we see. And we we dress the way they dress, and and we behave the way we think they they behave. So this article, as I say, is uh, February 19th, 2010. It says, uh, and it's actually from Science and Technology News, It says, Hollywood movies have found a mathematical formula that lets them match the effects of their shots to the tension spans of their audiences. Psychologist Professor James Cutting and his team from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, 
analyzed 150 high-grossing Hollywood films released from 1935 to 2005 and discovered the short lens in the more recent movies followed the same mathematical pattern that describes the human attention span. The pattern was derived by scientists at the University of Texas in Austin in the 1990s who studied the attention spans of subjects performing hundreds of trials. The team then converted the measurements of their attention spans into waveforms using a mathematical technique known as the Fourier transform. They found that the magnitude of the waves increased as the frequency decreased, a pattern known as pink noise or 1F fluctuation, which means that attention spans of the same lens recurred at regular intervals. Did you know that? That your attention spans literally come in cycles? The same pattern has been found by Benoit Mandelbrot, the chaos theorist, and the annual flood levels of the Nile, and has been seen by others in air turbulence and also in music. Cutting. I love how we, even the names, it's like Mr. Dandelion is, is the guy who comes to mow your lawn. Cutting, a cutter is someone that you use as you're making movies. They cut the movies and paste them together, basically. It's almost like they're laughing at us. Anyway, Cutting made his discovery by measuring the length of every shot in 150 comedy, drama, and action films, and then converted the measurements into waves for every movie. He found that the more recent the films were, the more likely they were likely to obey the 1-F fluctuation, and that this not just apply to fast action movies, Cutting said the significant thing is that shots of similar lengths recur in a regular pattern throughout the film. Cutting believes obeying the 1F law makes films resonate with the rhythm of human attention spans, and this makes them more gripping. Actually, I find that it's all like canned peas. Every pea looks the same now in the movies, if you notice. And because they're using these kind of formulas. And they become utterly boring, to me in a way. Films edited in this way would then tend to be more successful and the style of shooting and editing more likely to be copied. Now, what he's not telling you here is that, uh, that they already did this through cartoons for 20, 30 years and studied the effects on children. So he is not the discoverer of this whatsoever and they've been using it in, in the movies for an awful long time as well. It says here, Films of Cutting's own favorite genre, the film noir, do not generally follow the 1F law, with short lens tending to be more random. That's the old-fashioned black and white. By contrast, The Empire Strikes Back and the 2005 blockbuster movie Star Wars Episode 3, which Cutting considers to be just dreadful, both follow 1-F rigidly. The searchers conclude that over the next few decades, filmmakers may take more care to follow the 1-F law to try boost to boost audience engagement. And so it's got different... Uh, if you want more information, they'll leave a link at the end of this article. I'll put these articles up at the ends of the nights on my website, cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And you can look at this. There's much, much more to all this than what they tell us, of course, and they've always been at it longer, as always, than they ever tell us. Now, there's, there's John from Alaska there. I'll try and pop him in before I forget. Are you there, John? Hello, John. Yes, I'm here, Alan. How are you tonight? Not so bad, yeah. Yeah, I began listening to your show in around 2007. And I have to say it's been quite a journey. Um, the entire time I listened, I was um, pretty much writing down the items that you mentioned, the names you mentioned, and I mean, it's connected a lot of dots for me. And then reading your books listen to your CDs, and 
I mean, it's really helped me learn an appreciation for real history. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, it's cool to know 9-11 was an inside job, but if you don't know your history, you're still going to end up basically being a useful idiot serving one of the UN's, uh, one of the UN's agencies, basically, because, yeah. of course, all roads lead to the UN. Mm-hmm. Now, now, one of the biggest obstacles you find when you when you try to mention these things to other people uh, is the belief that people have where they think, you know, I'm educated, so I know all there is to know, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the problem with that is that they leave out in the public school system, they leave out the most notorious and the most destructive scientific movement in history. Namely, eugenics. Mm-hmm. I've heard you mention this a lot of times, but uh, basically, if you don't know about eugenics, you don't know anything. Yeah. You don't know anything. And I mean, the reason they don't mention eugenics is because then they have to tell us about how the British and American eugenics ideology was copied by the Nazis, mm-hmm. and uh, because America had uh, the their forced sterile sterilization laws in effect at that time. Yep. And um and these were copied by the Nazis. Um and these were implemented in a kind of one upmanship that the Nazis were trying to uh trying to show the American eugenicists. Mm-hmm. Um I have a quick article here if you don't mind me reading parts of it. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. This one is from the New York Times, August 2nd, 1933. It's very interesting. It's titled, Reich Reich Opens Race Study. It says, How University Corps Said to Be Based on American Models. It says, How Germany, August 1st. The first lecture course on race hygiene for physicians to be given in any German institution of higher learning was opened in How University today. It says, Dr. Kirtner who was in charge, told his auditors he followed the American Pathfinders, Madison Grant, and Lothrop Stoddard. He says he also regarded alleged race legislation in the United States as a model. He said, but the more drastic measures other nations have only proposed, the new Germany, he said, was actually carrying out. Okay. Now, um, if you look into the Nuremberg trials, uh, you find that the uh, the Germans or the Nazis who were on trial, they mentioned Madison Grant. Mm-hmm. To pretty much show how, you know, uh, we're not the only country who's had this ideology, you yeah. know. That's right. And, and uh, you know, of course, they did. They pretty much swept that under the rug. Yeah, I've still got a clip of that, uh, some of the, the Nazi officers, and Eichmann also brought that up in his defense uh, where he said that uh, we were only following what was already be, uh, being promoted from countries like Britain and uh, the United States of America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, this whole idea of eugenics, uh, which was pretty much popularized by America and Britain, um, it's been, I mean, all roles lead to either the United Nations mm-hmm. and eugenics. Absolutely. And, uh you know. I'll tell you what happened too. Here's a very important thing to do with this, and, and that is, 
if you go into to the book Climate Science or Ecoscience with John Holdren uh, writing an article in it for for the for Paul Ehrlich, you know, and Paul Ehrlich's wife was a member, a high-ranking member of the, the Club of Rome, and uh, the whole thing is about depopulation. What Ehrlich, what uh, Holdren, John Holdren himself, who's a science czar for the U.S. Right now, he said uh, in the book uh, that um, they could they could probably sterilize and bring down the population drastically in the third world countries because the people were uneducated and ignorant. He said, therefore, they'll come in for inoculations which will sterilize them. And I've got I've got stacks of stuff. They're still doing this with the tetanus shots. Five tetanus shots are telling people in the Philippines and it's sterilizing them. I've got all the articles here. It's been it's been admitted to by the UN actually when they did it in Africa and India. But Holdren said we'll have to use a different uh, tact in uh, in the U.S. and the Western Hemisphere. He says it'll have to be done under some other guise. Well, guess what this other guise is? It's called climate change. Um, um, sustainability, etc., etc. That's the method of depopulating the West. This is what all this carbon nonsense and stuff is all about. They had to use another tax than to say, than simply say, "Come in and get these free shots." You know, they'll help you. Yep. 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 Now you just mentioned Paul Ehrlich. Now he's a very interesting fellow in his own right. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've been looking into his name, and I came upon this uh, one document here. This one is from 1969. I'm going to try to read this, some of this real quick. It's titled, A Sterility Drug in Food is Hinted. Now, this was right before they uh, wrote the Ecoscience book. Yeah. Uh, but it says, um, San Francisco, November 24th, it says, A possibility that the government might have to put sterility drugs in reservoirs and in food shipped to foreign countries to limit human multiplication was envisaged today by a leading crusader on the population problem. Mm-hmm. It says the, create, the crusader, Dr. Paul Ehrlich of Stanford University, among a number of commentators who called attention to the population crisis as the United States Commission for UNESCO opened its 13th national conference to, here today. It mm-hmm. says UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Once again, there's UNESCO. It says the 100-member commission appointed by the Secretary of State, and uh, pretty much that's that's pretty much the gist of it. But there's Paul Ehrlich again, yep. and like I said, that was right before they uh, wrote the Ecoscience book. Mm-hmm. So here he is spreading this uh, ideology, and he's speaking before UNESCO and the United Nations. That's correct, and not only that, uh, the articles here too from the United Nations, where they have produced crops and tested them out on the third world countries, which have the, the unexpected, they said, but very fortunate effects of actually reducing offspring. They're actually giving this stuff to, to, the, to the so-called third world in certain areas. Yeah. I think we're getting it here, too, by the way. Yeah. Well, I know, you, I know you brought up soy several times mm-hmm. and, um, and how they're putting the soy in the food and how that lowers the sperm count. Yeah. Well, you know, me and my wife, we were walking, you know, through the grocery store the other day, and we went to the organic section, and, uh, you know, I'm just looking at, you know, the different uh, uh, products they have there. Lo and behold, I discover a product there called Estro Soy Plus, mm-hmm. okay? And it's, it's a, a, a product that they carry most uh, organic sections in the uh, grocery store, but it's called Estro Soy Plus. And it's a 
medicine, organic medicine made out of nothing but soy, mm -hmm. and it's actually a uh, menopause medicine for women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's made from fermented soy. A lot of people will say, well, you know, soy itself isn't bad. It's just the unfermented type. But here's a medicine here that's mm -hmm. uh, pretty much a estrogen replacement uh, therapy for women. Yes. And it's made out of fermented soy. Yeah. Oh, we get high levels of uh, estrogen, bisphenol A, and all the rest of it in the foods, even the processed foods. Um, and that was a right along with, from the early days where Holdren and even guys before him questioned where, how could they do it. Holdren and Julian Huxley uh, both said, and he was, Huxley was the first CEO of UNESCO, that's Julian, he said, um, he said, well, our, we can do it. Our only problem is should we put it in the water or in the food or in the inoculations? That's what he said. <laughs> yeah. And they're doing all three. That's correct. But, uh, and now, like you say, you got John Holdren. He's, uh, the science czar in the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's got people like Paul Ehrlich in his, uh, Rolodex, you know, on speed dial. Yep. Uh, but, uh, like I say, you have these educated idiots. They don't know anything about eugenics, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and they live in these cities. So they, they view everything as being, you know, overpopulated. You That's know, correct. You have to, yep eliminate you know some of these people yeah. but uh they don't realize that they're down as one of the people to be eliminated exactly exactly in fact julian huxley said this is we can sterilize them without their knowledge and, and at the same time break down because one of the one of the other things that to do was to break down the bonding of male and female so they wouldn't have children anyway but they'd be allowed to have as much sexual promiscuity as they wanted to because it'd be basically sterile that's happened Back with more after this break. This is Alan Watson. We're cutting through the matrix. And that was a good caller there, uh, John, because you should also look in, John, if you're still listening, to uh, do a, a scour of the Google videos up there and look for... Adam Curtis, because he did a documentary that's never been shown, the parts of it on Nuremberg, and also how they brought Hollywood people in. Uh, it's all worked out in advance. They wanted a show trial to make it seem like the worst villains on earth were being prosecuted to take you away from the fact that everybody else was doing much the same kind of stuff. And it truly was uh, run, uh, directed and ran and set up the whole idea, even where it would be, by uh, producers from Hollywood that did movies. That's literally... They had to paint Germany as the only bad character on the planet. Uh, and in true Western fashion, the black hat and the white hat and all that stuff. And uh, they had to vilify them to say that there's no... Now that this is over, we're, we're in a pure society now. And nothing was further from the, tr the truth. It was the same old agenda. Same old agenda. And this, because eugenics got a bad name, they then called it bioethics. Every university turns them out now, bioethicists. And they're actually eugenicists. Same bunch, same bunch. They're the ones who now have panels in every country that advise governments on the next step and the next step and how far to go. And, and how the, if the public's ready to go the next step, in fact, that's really what they're about. But we live in this new, uh, um, interconnected, supposedly global community 
And it's Marxist in tone, exactly what they found out at the Rees Commission with Senator Norman Dodd and the inquiry about the foundations funding all the left-wing organizations because they couldn't understand why the multi-billionaires that had the international corporations put out these foundations under their charity and actually funded thousands of radical Marxist groups. And they were told by the heads of those foundations the job was to blend the Sovietized system with that of the West so we could come together completely with a mixture of the two That was a dialectical process that was set up before they gave us the Soviet system. In fact, they knew exactly what they were going to do, how long it would last, and bring it together towards uh, the end of the millennium, which is exactly what happened. And now it's Marxism for the the masses, with the state running you, with an elite feudal system basically on top. That's really what it is. Now, and again, all based on eugenics and Darwinism, the best of the best of the bunch are the ones who have clawed to the top, uh, got the money by the, the wiles of their, of their cunning, and they deserve to rule the rest of the lesser types. That's really what it's based on. Now, here's how it's going in schools now, too. This is from Mail Online. Schools should not uh, force girls to wear skirts because it discriminates against transsexuals, warns a watchdog. I think it's time this watchdog was put down, don't you think? I think it's going a bit senile or something. Uh, 22nd of February 2010. Schools which force girls to wear skirts. I think girls really generally want to wear skirts at a certain age. Uh, And the guys like to look at them, and that's why the girls wear them. It says maybe breaking the law because... Breaking the law! Because the policy apparently discriminates against transsexuals. Official guidelines from the Quality and Human Rights Commission says the dress code may breach the rights of girls who feel compelled to live as boys. <sighs> In a 68-page report on the human rights of transsexuals, the watchdog says that requiring pupils to wear gender-specific clothes is potentially unlawful. I guess they're going to give us all these boiler suits, these blue boiler suits that all the masks have to wear, male and female, eh? Uh, that, that'll do away with the fashion industry. Won't be too pleased in Hollywood. Now, I'll put these links up on my site at the end of the show if I'm graced with enough speed by ExploreNet, which cuts me back all the time. So from Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.